Introduction, Section 10 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 10. The notion of the mythos in its application to sacred histories not clearly apprehended by theologians. Thus, indeed, did the mythical view gain application to the biblical history. Still, the notion of the mythos was for a long time neither clearly apprehended nor applied to a due extent. Not clearly apprehended. The characteristic which had been recognized as constituting the distinction between historical and philosophical mythi, however just that distinction might in itself be, was of a kind which easily betrayed the critic back again into the scarcely abandoned natural explanation. His task, with regard to historical mythi, was still to separate the natural fact, the nucleus of historical reality, from its unhistorical and miraculous embellishments. An essential difference indeed existed. The natural explanation attributed the embellishments to the opinion of the actors concerned, or of the narrator. The mythical interpretation derived them from tradition. But the mode of proceeding was left too little determined. If the rationalist could point out historical mythi in the Bible without materially changing his mode of explanation, so the supernaturalist, on his part, felt himself less offended by the admission of historical mythi, which still preserved to the sacred narratives a basis of fact, than by the supposition of philosophical mythi, which seemed completely to annihilate every trace of historical foundation. It is not surprising, therefore, that the interpreters who advocated the mythical theory spoke almost exclusively of historical mythi, that Bauer, amongst a considerable number of mythi which he cites from the New Testament, finds but one philosophical mythos, and that a mixed mode of interpretation, partly mythical and partly natural, a medley far more contradictory than the pure natural explanation, from the difficulties of which these critics sought to escape, should have been adopted. Thus Bauer thought that he was explaining Jehovah's promise to Abraham as an historical mythos, when he admitted as the fundamental fact of the narrative that Abraham's hopes of a numerous posterity were reawakened by the contemplation of the star-sown heavens. Another theologian imagined he had seized the mythical point of view when, having divested the announcement of the birth of the Baptist of the supernatural, he still retained the dumbness of Zechariah as the historical groundwork. In like manner, Krug, immediately after assuring us that his intention is not to explain the substance of the history according to the natural mode, but to explain the origin of the narrative according to the mythical view, constitutes an accidental journey of oriental merchants the basis of the narrative of the visit of the wise men from the east. But the contradiction is most glaring when we meet with palpable misconceptions of the true nature of a mythos in a work on the mythology of the New Testament, such as Bowers, in which, for instance, he admits, in the case of the parents of John the Baptist, a marriage which had actually been childless during many years, in which he explains the angelic appearance at the birth of Jesus as a meteoric phenomenon, supposes the occurrence of thunder and lightning and the accidental descent of a dove at his baptism, constitutes a storm the groundwork of the transfiguration, 
and converts the angels at the tomb of the risen Jesus into white grave clothes. Kaiser also, though he complains of the unnaturalness of many of the natural explanations, accords to a very considerable proportion of natural explanations a place by the side of the mythical, remarking, and the remark is in itself just, that to attempt to explain all the miracles of the New Testament in one and the same manner betrays a limited and partial comprehension of the subject. Let it be primarily admitted that the ancient author intended to narrate a miracle, and the natural explanation is in many instances admissible. This may be either a physical historical explanation, as in the narrative of the leper, whose approaching recovery Jesus doubtless perceived, or it may be a psychological explanation, since in the case of many sick persons, the fame of Jesus and faith in him were mainly instrumental in effecting the cure. Sometimes, indeed, good fortune must be taken into the account, as where one apparently dead revived in the presence of Jesus, and he became regarded as the author of the sudden reanimation. With respect to other miracles, Kaiser is of opinion that the mythical interpretation is to be preferred. He, however, grants a much larger space to historical than to philosophical mythi. He considers most of the miracles in the Old and New Testament real occurrences mythically embellished, such as the narrative of the piece of money in the fish's mouth, and of the changing of water into wine, which later history he supposes to have originated from a friendly jest on the part of Jesus. Few only of the miracles are recognized by this critic as pure poetry embodying Jewish ideas, as the miraculous birth of Jesus and the murder of the innocents. Gobbler, in particular, calls attention to the error of treating philosophical mythi as if they were historical, and of thus converting into facts things that never happened. He is, however, as little disposed to admit the exclusive existence of philosophical as of historical mythi in the New Testament, but adopting a middle course, he decides in each case that the mythos is of this kind or of that, according to its intrinsic character. He maintains that it is as necessary to guard against the arbitrary proceeding of handling as philosophical a mythos, through which a fact unquestionably glimmers, as it is to avoid the opposite tendency to explain naturally or historically that which belongs properly to the mythical clothing. In other words, when the derivation of a mythos from a thought is easy and natural, and when the attempt to educe from it a matter of fact and to give the wonderful history a natural explanation does violence to the sense or appears ridiculous, we have, according to Gobbler, certain evidence that the mythos is philosophical and not historical. He remarks, in conclusion, that the philosophical-mythical interpretation is in many cases far less offensive than the historical-mythical explanation. Yet, notwithstanding this predilection in favor of the philosophical mythos in relation to biblical history, one is surprised to find that Gobbler himself was ignorant of the true nature both of the historical and of the philosophical mythos. Speaking of the mythological interpreters of the New Testament who had preceded him, he says that some of them, such as Dr. Paulus, discover in the history of Jesus historical mythi only, 
whilst others, the anonymous E.F., in Henke's magazine, for instance, find only philosophical mythi. From this we see that he confounded not only the natural explanation with the historical-mythical view, for in Pallas's commentary the former only is adopted, but also historical with philosophical mythi, for the author E.F. is so exclusively attached to the historical-mythical view that his explanations might almost be considered as naturalistic. De Veta has some very cogent observations directed equally against the arbitrary adoption either of the historical-mythical or of the natural explanation in relation to the Mosaic history. In reference to the New Testament, an anonymous writer in Berthold's critical journal is the most decided in his condemnation of every attempt to discover an historical groundwork even in the gospel mythi. To him, likewise, the middle path struck out by Gobbler between the exclusive adoption of historical mythi, on the one hand, and of philosophical mythi, on the other, appears inapplicable. For though a real occurrence may in fact constitute the basis of most of the New Testament narratives, it may still be impossible at the present time to separate the element of fact from the mythical adjuncts which have been blended with it, and to determine how much may belong to the one and how much to the other. Usteri, likewise, expressed the opinion that it is no longer possible to discriminate between the historical and the symbolical in the gospel mythi. No critical knife, however sharp, is now able to separate the one element from the other. A certain measure of probability, respecting the preponderance of the historical in one legend and of the symbolical in another, is the ultimate point to which criticism can now attain. Opposed, however, to the one-sidedness of those critics who found it so easy to disengage the historical contents from the mythical narratives of the scriptures, is the one-sidedness of other critics, who, on account of the difficulty of the proposed separation, despaired of the possibility of success, and were consequently led to handle the whole mass of gospel mythi as philosophical, at least in so far as to relinquish the endeavor to extract from them a residuum of historical fact. Now, it is precisely this latter one-sidedness which has been attributed to my criticism of the life of Jesus. Consequently, several of the reviewers of this work have taken occasion repeatedly to call attention to the varying proportions in which the historical and the ideal in the pagan religion and primitive history the legitimate province of the mythos, alternate, an interchange with the historical, which in the Christian primitive history, presupposing the notion of the mythos to be admitted here, must unquestionably take place in a far greater degree. Thus Ullmann distinguishes not only firstly the philosophical and secondly the historical mythos, but makes a further distinction between the latter that is, the historical mythos, in which there is always a preponderance of the fictitious. And thirdly, the mythical history, in which the historical element, though wrought into the ideal, forms the predominating constituent, whilst fourthly, in histories of which the legend is a component element, we tread properly speaking upon historical ground since in these histories we meet only with a few faint echoes of mythical fiction. 
Ullmann is moreover of opinion, and Brett Schneider and others agree with him, that independently of the repulsion and confusion which must inevitably be caused by the application of the term mythos to that which is Christian, a term originally conceived in relation to a religion of a totally different character, it were more suitable in connection with the primitive Christian records to speak only of gospel legend and the legendary element. George, on the contrary, has recently attempted not only more accurately to define the notions of the mythos and of the legend, but likewise to demonstrate that the gospel narratives are mythical rather than legendary. Speaking generally, we should say, that he restricts the term mythos to what had previously been distinguished as philosophical mythi, and that he applies the name legend to what had hitherto been denominated historical mythi. He handles the two notions as the antipodes of each other, and grasps them with a precision by which the notion of the mythos has unquestionably gained. According to George, mythos is the creation of a fact out of an idea, legend the seeing of an idea in a fact, or arising out of it. A people, a religious community, finds itself in a certain condition, or round of institutions, of which the spirit, the idea, lives and acts within it. But the mind, following a natural impulse, desires to gain a complete representation of that existing condition, and to know its origin. This origin, however, is buried in oblivion, or is too indistinctly discernible to satisfy present feelings and ideas. Consequently, an image of that origin, colored by the light of existing ideas, is cast upon the dark wall of the past, which image is, however, but a magnified reflex of existing influences. If such be the rise of the mythos, the legend, on the contrary, proceeds from given facts, represented indeed sometimes in an incomplete and abridged, sometimes in an amplified form, in order to magnify the heroes of the history, but disjointed from their true connection, the points of view from which they should be contemplated and the ideas they originally contained, having, in the course of transmission, wholly disappeared. The consequence is that new ideas, conceived in the spirit of the different ages through which the legend has passed down, become substituted in the stead of the original ideas. For example, the period of Jewish history subsequent to the time of Moses, which was, in point of fact, pervaded by a gradual elevation of ideas to monotheism and to a theocracy, is, in a later legend, represented in the exactly opposite light, as a state falling away from the religious constitution of Moses. An idea so unhistorical will infallibly here and there distort facts transmitted by tradition, fill up blanks in the history, and subjoin new and significant features, and then the mythos reappears in the legend. It is the same with the mythos. Propagated by tradition, it, in the process of transmission, loses its distinctive character and completeness, or becomes exaggerated in its details, as, for example, in the matter of numbers. And then the mythos comes under the influence of the legend. In such wise do these two formations, so essentially distinct in their origin, cross each other and mingle together. Now, if the history of the life of Jesus be of mythical formation, 
inasmuch as it embodies the vivid impression of the original idea which the first christian community had of their founder this history though unhistorical in its form is nevertheless a faithful representation of the idea of the christ if instead of this the history be legendary if the actual external facts are given in a distorted and often magnified form are represented in a false light and embody a false idea then on the contrary the real tenor of the life of jesus is lost to us so that according to george the recognition of the mythical element in the gospels is far less prejudicial to the true interests of the christian faith than the recognition of the legendary element with respect to our own opinion without troubling ourselves here with the dogmatic signification we need only remark in this introduction that we are prepared to meet with both legend and mythos in the gospel history and when we undertake to extract the historical contents which may possibly exist in narratives recognized as mythical we shall be equally careful neither on the one part by a rude and mechanical separation to place ourselves on the same ground with the natural interpreter nor on the other by a hypercritical refusal to recognize such contents where they actually exist to lose sight of the history End of section 10